All right, sorry. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Morning. Um, I um, I didn't have much in me yesterday. Yesterday was a pretty exhausting day at the the Lance household, and um, for reasons we don't need to get into right now, I um, I've been exhausted all week, not sleeping, and uh, when it came time to write the sermon, I just didn't have a lot in me. So it's funny because I had a friend, a good friend of mine, call me yesterday and say, hey, I'm supposed to be doing a sermon here in uh, in a few weeks, and can you give me some tips on how to write a sermon? And so I blabbered on and on about who knows what. And uh, finally he said, I got some good advice that if you're ever stuck and you don't know what to say, just tell a story. And that's just as good most of the time anyway. So... Uh, I, I didn't have, I didn't have it in me to sit and write a sermon like I normally would as much as I love doing that. Well, so what we're going to do is look at the three stories of the men who God made covenants with last week and tell their story. And there's a common thread that I want to pull out of all three of them. So it's not a sermon like I've been doing and I feel bad about that, but, um, I think this will be good too. Just, uh, looking at some stories together. But before we do that, you shouldn't feel bad. You you shouldn't feel bad. Well, yeah. Well, thank you. All right. Let's tell some stories here this morning. So last week, uh, we started talking about um, David wants to build God a house. God says, "No, I'm going to build you a house, David," and makes a covenant with David. And covenants are very rare, very powerful um, passages in Scripture. In fact, there's only five of them. Um, Some people include Adam and Eve to make it six. There's other little smaller covenant-type deals made, but the big-picture covenants uh, belong to five men. The first is Noah. The second is Abraham. The third is Moses. The fourth is David. And the fifth uh, is Jesus. And each of these covenants builds off the other and so we talked about if God is building a house a covenantal house then each covenant isn't tearing down the house and rebuilding from scratch each covenant is adding another room onto the house and we took a tour through Lance Manor we'll continue that tour next week Um, but the first three houses Noah Abraham and Moses um, I want to look at their stories just a little bit more as I mentioned and uh In telling the story, I think a lot comes to life about these covenants, but there's one thing in particular that that I want to sort of linger on towards the end. So we're going to be flipping through the Bible quite a bit. We're going to be reading the stories right from Scripture. So if you got your Bible handy, please read from it. Otherwise, you can run and grab one or just listen to to me as I read it. But we're going to start this morning in Genesis 6, right near the very beginning of the Bible. And... Look at the story of Noah. Genesis 6, we'll start at verse 5, includes some of the saddest, uh, most condemning words in all of Scripture. So we're going to start by reading Genesis 6, 5 to 22. And here's the sad part. The Lord, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. 
So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it. There's those rooms of covenant. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long. And because I, that, that might as well, that number means nothing to me. Some of you might be able to visualize 450 feet, but I looked it up. 450 feet is roughly 13 school buses long, if that helps. 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door on the side of the ark, make lower, middle, upper decks. I'm going to build, bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground with you will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him, like a good, righteous, and blameless man would. So the story continues. Noah is 600 years old at this point, which, I don't know, that's really significant. And he builds the ark, the animals come, and uh, what happens is God seals them in the ark for them and says in seven days i'm going to send the rain it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights and if those numbers sound familiar seven and 40 seven is the number of completion just like the seven days of uh, creation this is seven days of recreation Um, 40 god always takes massive steps in salvation history using 40 days and 40 nights Um, you think of or 40 years And so those numbers are very significant. The water floods the earth for 150 days. Every living thing with the breath of life dies, which is more than just a poetic way of saying everything dies. Um, God remembers Noah at the beginning of chapter 8 and sends a wind. And the reason I say all those things with the breath of life is significant and God sends a wind is significant is because breath and wind and spirit are all actually the same word, Uh, especially in Greek, those words, the word is pneuma, where we get the word pneumatics from, and those words are all the same. And whenever you see wind, breath, or spirit, that's the same word, and it's always God showing his providence and his power. So you think of the Holy Spirit, who is himself providence and power, and the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost as a wind, and Throughout scripture, whenever God breathes into something, the word inspiration literally means God breathed. Um, That breath and that wind is always God showing providence and power to his people. The Red Sea split by a blast of God's nostrils, which is breath and wind. Um, So again, here it's God showing his power and his providence. 
over again the waters of chaos just like the original story of creation god is not in the water god has created the water and he is above the water and out of the chaos of that water out of the the turmoil and and ugliness of that water just like the flood god recreates the earth the heavens the people everything out of it so it's a it's a story of recreation the ark eventually lands on mount ararat and it sits there for 40 days. There's those 40 days again. God sends out a raven. No dice. Sends out a dove. No dice. Sends the dove out again. This time it comes back with an olive branch, which is a symbol of peace in that world and in ours. Um, then he sends the dove out again and it doesn't come back. So that tells Noah it's time to release the animals. It's time to be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth once again. Um, here's Genesis 8, 15 to 22. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. By the way, pop quiz. How many of each animal did Noah bring on the ark? Show me with your fingers. Two. If you said two, you get partial credit. He actually brought seven of the clean animals. God commands him to bring seven of um, animals you can sacrifice, which is for this moment here. He sacrificed burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And here's a really beautiful poem. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Um, God sees our wickedness, but he will never again completely destroy us, which is the covenant we looked at last week. And so the story of Noah is the act of recreation out of the chaos of the waters God creates and forms a people that he loves. Um, it's a refining, just like baptism is a, a cleansing in the water. That's what the flood represents as well. A refining and a redemption story. And then God gives the covenant. Um, our part of the covenant is, as you may remember, spread life and respect life. So be fruitful and multiply, which is more than just have lots of babies. Um, be fruitful. Fruitfulness in New Testament means be of a character that brings glory to God. Multiplying means making disciples. So it has much more to do with evangelism and righteous living than it does with just procreation. A spread life and respect life. He gives the animals of the earth for us to, to eat and to have power over, but reminds us to respect the blood of life within those creatures and within our neighbors. So spread life and respect life. That's our end of the first bargain. His end of the bargain is to preserve life, to give life, um, which he promises to do uh, with patience and grace and love. He will preserve our lives even though we're worthy of wrath. So that's the end of Noah's story, except, whoops, no it's not. The covenant is given in Genesis 9, and there is one more very significant story of Noah that happens after God gives him the covenant. So there's this denouement. I don't know if you remember rising action, climax, and falling action. 
denouement is like the story after the climax and the denouement of Noah's story is something. So here's the, the end of the story of our hero Noah and it's not so heroic. Uh, Genesis 9 verses 20 to 27 says this. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered, meaning naked, inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from the wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his slave. Noah then lives another 350 years and dies at the age of 950. That's the end of Noah's story. And what, what a ridiculous end it is. Drunkenness. Public nudity, well, he's in his tent, but you get the picture. Drunkenness, public nudity, and to cap it all off, he curses his own grandkids to, to slavery. This was God's last hope for humanity. This guy, Noah, this was the last bastion of righteousness and blamelessness on the earth. As soon as Noah is given the covenant, like we get the impression that it's as soon as he can plant a vineyard, he does. As soon as those grapes are ripe, he harvests them. As soon as he can make the wine, he does. And as soon as he's given the covenant, Noah proves himself less than worthy. Pay attention to that. That's going to be a trend. God gives this great covenant of grace and patience. And Noah turns around and that's the end of his story. So I find that significant. After Noah comes Abraham. Just a few chapters later in Genesis 12. And we're introduced to Abram. That's his name originally. Uh, we get a bit of a genealogy for Abram. We know that he's in the land of Ur. We don't know a lot about this guy. And then suddenly we're just thrust into the story in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It says this. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's like here's this shepherd in the middle of nowhere and God shows up and says, hey, you're the most special guy in the history of, of humanity and I'm going to bless you in a way like I've never blessed anyone before. I'm going to make you great. Many descendants. Um, you will be blessed in order to bless all of humanity I'm going to pick you out of nowhere. You're going to follow me to somewhere and I'm going to richly reward you. It's this shocking out of nowhere experience. So that's amazing. Part of why it's amazing isn't just because Abram is uh, nobody from nowhere, but also because at this point, Abram is 75 years old and his he and his wife, Sarai, who becomes Sarah, he and his wife, at that age, have had no children to, of their own at all yet. And they're advanced in years. They're 75 and 65 at this point, which is beyond your prime years for having children, from what I understand. No offense to those of you who are that age. Again, you can still be fruitful and multiply, just maybe in a different way. Um, 
At this point, Abram is 75 with no children, and these covenantal blessings seem to hinge a lot on having children. But Abram obeys God, follows God, which is really good. So out of nowhere, God calls Abram, says, follow me, I'm going to richly bless you. The next chapter, uh, Abram and Lot kind of wander into the promised land and choose where they're going to be. And Abram chooses the not so good side, but God shows him, he says, all this land that you see, I'm going to make it yours, Abram. This will be my promised land that I'll give to you and your descendants. And your descendants will cover the earth like the dust covers the earth. And again, Abram's thinking, hey, that's great. I still have no kids. So we'll see. Abram in the next few chapters gets wealthy. He meets this mysterious high priest named Melchizedek um, who blesses him. Abram wins a few battles against some rival kings. And then he re-encounters God in chapter 15. And there, Abram finally addresses the elephant in the room, his childlessness. And that's when things get really weird. So turn with me to Genesis 15. And we're going to read up to 18. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is some other guy, just uh, next in line, his next of kin. Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The man, this man will not be your heir, this Eliezer of Damascus. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took God took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brings them, chops them in half, uh, lays their carcasses like this super gruesome procession. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. The Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that's Egypt, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for, for 400 years. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. As the sun was setting, darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, All of this land, all this land that you see will be yours. So God reestablishes the covenant. This time, Abram says, Hey, look, I've got no kids. How is this possible? And God says, I will give you kids from your own, your own body. And this really weird ceremony to seal the deal so we're, we're going to skip chapter 16 and move to chapter 17 which we examined last week abram is now 99 years old still has no legitimate descendants god tells abram to walk faithfully and be blameless then the covenant is finally given which we talked about last week covenant includes god promises fruitfulness god promises a name change from abram exalted father to abraham father of many um Abram's line will include many nations and, and even kings. It promise, um, the covenant includes, includes the promised land, and it's an everlasting covenant for all time. So that's the, pro, the covenant God makes with Abraham. Oh, and circumcision at age 99. You and every male in your household is to be circumcised. 
no matter the, the age. So that's the deal. God will confirm this covenant one more time. Um, in chapter 22, after Abraham passes the test of faith by being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. After that, God says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, just as God has not withheld his only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So, to summarize, God establishes and reconfirms this covenant with Abraham at least four times. Four times he says, I will bless you, descendants that outnumber the stars and the sand. And four times he makes that promise. It's not until after the third time in Genesis 17, which is that that third covenant comes 24 years after the first. And it's not until after the third one that God begins to fulfill his promises to Abraham through the birth of Isaac. Abraham had to wait a quarter of a century from the first time he heard the promise to after the third time he heard the promise for the promise to start coming true. That's a long time. And in the meanwhile, he follows faithfully. Um, But here's what I find fascinating. After each covenantal promise, um, well, at least after the first three, God comes to Abraham, makes this great promise, and immediately scripture lets us know of something incredibly stupid that Abraham does. Every, like every time God makes this great promise, I'll make you descendants. And immediately Abram turns the page, turns the corner and does something ridiculous that makes you want to bang your head against the wall and say, what are you doing? Father of faith. So, um, in chapter 12, that's where God first makes the, the blessing. I will make you, I'll bless you, bless you in order to bless all the nations of the earth. The very first thing it says that Abram does is he and Sarah go to Egypt and Sarah's very beautiful and Abram gets afraid that the the Pharaoh will kill Abraham to get his wife from him. And so he tells Sarah, hey, pretend you're my sister, go sleep with the Pharaoh and then we'll be safe. So I don't know about you, but that sounds like not very faithful. Out of fear, he pawns his wife off because he's afraid for his own life. Does that sound like faithfulness to you? Because it doesn't to me. Um, He lies. He schemes. That's the first thing it tells us he does after the first time God makes a covenant with him. In chapter 15, the issue of Abram's childlessness finally gets addressed. He's 85. Time is running thin. God has promised him flesh and blood, a son to come from his own flesh and blood, not some descendant, not some slave kid, his own son. Um, and, And... What's the very next thing Abraham does? He takes matters into his own hands in chapter 16. He follows the advice of Sarah and sleeps with his slave woman, Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant with who will uh, eventually be Ishmael. Then things sour between Sarah and Hagar. Understandably, Hagar is forced to bear the son of another man who treats her like a possession. That doesn't sound like a wonderful circumstance. And Hagar represents to Sarah, Sarah's greatest failure as a woman in that ancient culture, where having children was everything. And so they come to hate each other, and Sarah complains to Abraham that this situation is all your fault, Abraham. This is all because of you. And so Abraham says, what do I care? She's your slave. Do do whatever you want with her. And sadly, Sarah 
severely mistreats Hagar so badly that Hagar flees to the wilderness wanting to die in the desert. Until God shows up and redeems her, God gives Hagar, this tossed off woman who's used and abused, uh, he gives her her own covenantal promise, which is really beautiful, um, which we won't get into. But I bring it up because do Abraham's actions seem faithful and heroic here? Not at all. It's more like faithless and slimy. He he treats an unprivileged woman as property and disregards both her and her unborn son. Just dismisses her, says, do whatever you want with her. I give you permission to beat her and treat her as harshly as you want. And the whole act of impregnating Hagar is an act of faithlessness. He doesn't trust that God will give him a son with Sarah as he promised he would. And so he makes an illegitimate son with Hagar. That's an act of faithlessness, which God eventually redeems and and makes okay. But he's not very faithful. Then God shows up again in chapter 17, which we looked at last week when Abraham was 99 years old. And when he hears that a child will be born to Sarah, who is at this point 89 years old, what does Abraham do? He laughs. He laughs in God's face when God says, Sarah will have a baby. Abraham laughs at him. He laughs because he's nearly 100. Sarah's 90. Plus, hey, I've already got a son. I've got this Ishmael kid. I don't really love him. I don't really care about him or his mother, but I've got a son. What do I need? What do I need this other son for? And so he laughs in the face of God. And so in weakness and in doubt, he laughs at God, which is why the promised son will be called Isaac, which means laughter. Oh, by the way, Sarah laughs as well when she hears the news that she's going to have a son. And I just want to read this. This is one of the funniest passages of scripture to me. The Lord said, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yeah, you did laugh. I, I, I just think that's so funny. It's God saying, you laughed. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. And it's so juvenile. I just think it's hilarious between God and, and Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah both laugh in the face of, of this, this news. Does laughing in God's face sound heroic? Does it even sound faithful? Because it doesn't to me. Later, in chapter 20, right near the end of, of Abraham's story, Abraham pulls the same stunt as he had in Egypt, just this time um, with Amalek, I think it is. I, f- I forget what, s- some other king. He lies, says Sarah's his sister again, um, pawns Sarah off on this other guy. Um, in chapter 21, he pulls the same stunt again with Hagar and Ishmael. He sends them away into the desert. They almost die by a well, but God provides for them. So the father of faith is a bit of a cad. He's not an exemplary upstanding guy all the time. He lies, he schemes, he abuses people and uses them. He's not always the most upstanding guy as much as he is the father of faith and is a real role model for us for what faith looks like. Okay, one more story. This is taking longer than I expected to. I apologize for that. We're going to turn to Exodus 24, the story of Moses. So the the third covenant is the one God makes through Moses, and it's the giving of the law. The entire law are the conditions of a covenant God makes with his people. The third room of the the covenantal house. And chapter 24 is this really beautiful portrait of the people accepting the law and committing to obey um, the law. 
committing to the terms of the covenant. So I'll read it real quick. Um, God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You're to worship at a distance. Um, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, put it in the bulls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron and all the elders excuse me, elders with them went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites, despite how holy this moment was. They saw God, and they ate and drank. They had a potluck with God, which is awesome. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. We'll skip to 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountains, and on the seventh day, there's those seven days, always with seven days, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, stayed on the mountain for, you guessed it, 40 days and 40 nights. So that's the people accepting the covenant, saying they're willing to obey the covenant. Um, That's the glory of Moses, this glorious image of he goes and potlucks with God and goes up into the consuming fire that is God. The next seven chapters after that are details of the law. Here's how to build a tabernacle. Here's what the priests are supposed to do, all that kind of ins and outs of the law. The next time we hear from the people of Israel is in chapter 32, and it ain't good. In chapter 32, uh, I'm just going to read the first few verses of chapter 32. I won't read the whole thing. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't we don't know what has happened to that guy. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay. Moses is still up the mountain. The mountain is still quaking. The fiery presence of God is still up at the tippy top of the mountain in smoke and fire and ash and earthquakes. They can look from where they're sitting and see the presence of God and they know that Moses is up there with him. And still these fools have the audacity to say, we don't know where Moses is. Let's make something with our own hands and we'll say that's who brought us out of Egypt. This golden thing that we just made with our bare hands, that's who gets the credit for our salvation. That's who gets the credit for our redemption. This is who we will worship. Why? Because we can't see Moses right now. We can see he's up there. We can see and hear the glory of God right before us, but we need something tangible. Faith isn't enough. And so... They worship this golden calf that they choose to make and they give it the credit for their salvation and redemption. 
These people who less than 40 days earlier had just signed this covenant with blood and with a million people chanting in unison, we will obey. We will follow the terms of this great covenant that our God has made, our saving God. We will obey. And at the first opportunity, they commit idolatry and they turn from their God just because they can't see Moses at the moment. It's ridiculous. And it's, it's not just some Joe Schmo who leads them in this, by the way. It's Aaron, Moses' brother, who will soon become high priest of all Israel. He really ought to know better. And he's the one who says, hey, see this golden calf? This is who saved you from Egypt. It's ridiculous. God, up on the mountain with Moses, sees this happening. And he says, Moses, this thick-necked people, this stubborn, ignorant people... I've had enough. I'm going to wipe them out just like I wiped out everyone in the time of Noah. I'm going to destroy them. That's it. I can't do anything with these people. They're too dumb. They're too foolish and faithless. And Moses says, no, hold on. For your glory, preserve them. Remember your covenant to Noah? Preserve them. And so God doesn't destroy Israelites. Moses comes down the mountain, smashes the stone tablets with the law on them. He uh, crushes the golden calf and makes, powders it into their drink and makes them all drink it. Drink your sins. Literally take in this idol you've made. Then he sends the Levites out with swords and they slaughter 3,000 of their countrymen. Then God sends a plague to finish off a bunch more of them. It's not exactly obedience to the covenant like they had promised four weeks earlier, is it? It's not exactly a, a portrait of obedience. It's, in fact, immediate disobedience in the worst possible way. The people ratify the covenant. They say that they will obey. They don't. But Moses himself isn't blameless. Just before this story in Exodus 17, Moses is wandering with the Israelites through the desert. They're thirsty, obviously. But instead of faithfully asking God to provide, they grumble and complain against Moses. God says, okay, strike that rock with your stick. Moses does it. Water gushes out. They call the place Meribah, which means quarreling, because all the people quarreled with God and was with Moses. But God, even though the people are dumb and, and faithless and, and quarrelers, God provides for them because he loves them. Well, fast forward to Numbers 20. We're not going to read Numbers 20. <clears throat> it's a little bit longer. But what happens is the people are again in Meribah, the same place. As, as in Exodus 17, which was maybe a year earlier. And they come to that place again, and they're quarreling again with God, saying, hey, we're thirsty, God. We wish we were back in Egypt where at least we had water. We were slaves breaking our backs, but at least we had water. And it's so ungrateful. And so God says, okay, Moses, speak to the rock and water will come from it. But Moses doesn't do that. Moses doesn't speak to the rock. Instead, he does what he had done earlier, a year earlier, and he smacks the rock with a stick. This time he does it twice, partly out of frustration, partly out of routine. Hey, this worked for me in the past. I did this thing in the past. So if I do it again, it will work again. And it does. Water does come out of the rock again. But Moses and Aaron are both punished for this act of disobedience. It seems like a small thing. But because Moses didn't speak to the stone and instead smacked it with a stick... God says, okay, because of your disobedience, you and Aaron, you're not going to see the promised land. You'll stand on a mountain, you'll look with your eyes and see where Israel is going, but you will not be allowed, you will not be permitted to enter that promised land that I have promised you. 
because of this act of disobedience. Moses, he accepts the glory. He doesn't say God will provide water for you. In one of the verses in the story we didn't read, he says, must we bring you water from the rock? He gets frustrated at the people and says, we will do this. I will do this. I'll do the thing I had done a year earlier and I'll smack it with a stick and it'll work because I'm the power here and I will get the credit for it. And God says, no, because of that, no promised land for you. Go to your room. So add to that Moses' past history, which for the first 40 years, he was privileged, uh, a very privileged prince of Egypt who ignored the plight of his people. He then murders somebody. And then for the next 40 years, he lives as an obscure shepherd in Midian. For the first 80 years of his life, Moses, not very heroic. He's a murderer. And he's somebody who enjoyed all the privileges of wealth and fame with any of the responsibility of caring for underprivileged people. So again, not a great guy. And because he is barred from entering the promised land, Moses will never see the fruits of the covenant that God secured with his people through him. He will never see these promises come to fruition. So, why why am I tearing down the very heroes whom God has covenanted with? Why do I take it upon myself to highlight how broken these guys are? What is my point here? This has gone way longer than I thought it would. Again, I apologize. But here's my point. Well, they are imperfect. In fact, in major ways, they are fools. The worst insult you can call someone in the Old Testament. They are fools and failures and fiends. And worst of all, they are frequently faithless. It's a lot of F words. Fools, failures, fiends, and frequently faithless. As soon as Noah gets off the boat, he's naked and drunk in public. As soon as God makes his covenant with Abraham, he's pawning off his wife in fear. And every time God confirms this covenant, Abraham immediately screws up. An illegitimate child with a slave girl, both of whom Abraham mistreats and rejects. He laughs in the face of the promise that God had made repeatedly over the course of a quarter century. So not a great guy all the time. And Moses took matters into his own hands disobediently, took credit away from God, and was punished for it by not being able to, to be present when God fulfills the covenant presence, um, sorry, God fulfills his covenant promise of occupying the land he had promised to Abraham. These heroes were faithless failures even before the ink on the covenant had dried. The ink is still wet on these promises God is making and they're proving themselves faithless failures. But does that make God turn from his covenant? Does that make him rescind his blessings and promises? Does a drunken Noah make God say, you know what? Floods ain't so bad. Maybe I need another one. No. Does a lying, scheming, abusive Abraham make God say, you know what? Maybe this dude isn't fit to be the father of many descendants like stars in the sky or dust on the ground. Maybe maybe no babies for you, Abraham, until you learn your lesson. Does God do that? No. No, he doesn't. Does a reckless, credit-grabbing Moses with a murderous past make God say, you know what? I'm going to give my law through a more perfect agent of obedience and holiness. This hothead needs to calm down a little, and until he does calm down, I'm not going to use this guy. No. Does an idolatrous, ungrateful nation of Israelites, full of ignorant, faithless complainers, do these millions of unfit-to-follow-God people make God say, you know what? You want law? Here's your law. The law is the shape up or ship out. And since you can't shape up on your own, 
since that's impossible for humans, I'm going to ship out of here. Good luck with righteousness and holiness. I'll see you in literally the place of damnation. Does he do that? No, he doesn't do that. In none of those cases does God nullify his covenant with any of the people he makes these covenants with, whether it's Noah, Abraham, Moses, or the entire nation of Israel. God doesn't nullify those covenants at the first act of faithlessness. He doesn't regret his choice of who he makes these covenants with. In fact, they're called heroes, all of them. And there is heroics to their life. He disciplines them, but he doesn't expect perfection to hold up his end of the bargain. He covenants with drunks, and liars, and schemers, and abusers, and idolaters, and fools, and murderers, and credit stealers, and failures. That's who he establishes covenants with. He gives patience to the losers. He gives grace to the screw-ups. He gives glory to the nobodies. He commands them to walk blamelessly, righteously, and faithfully, and they fail him time and time and time again, but still he refuses to break his covenant with them. Still he calls them forward, he blesses them, he redeems them. When they are faithless repeatedly, he is faithful completely. I'll say that again. When they are faithless repeatedly, he is faithful completely to them. Even when God made them wait long periods of time, like Abraham had to wait 25 years before he finally has the son God promised him. 25 years is a pretty long time. Even when God makes them wait, and even when God removes elements of the covenantal blessings from them, like Moses, for example, wasn't permitted to enter the promised land, that's a part of the covenant that he never gets to experience because of his disobedience. And even when God punishes them harshly, like sending swords and plagues to destroy some of the idolatrous Israelites, Even in the most challenging low points for those with whom God has covenanted, did God ever turn from his promises? Did God ever tear down the house of covenants he'd built for them and start again? No, even when he did that with Noah, he doesn't abandon humanity completely. He preserves them with patience and grace. Did God ever waver from his promises? Did he ever prove himself anything less than absolutely faithful to those fools failures, and fiends. No, he never proves himself anything less than absolutely faithful. And he won't with David either, who is the fourth covenant receiver, who really starts to fall apart after receiving the covenantal promises of 2 Samuel 7. Up until 2 Samuel 7, everything David does is good and right and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. After 2 Samuel 7, that is absolutely not the case. David becomes a weak and, and, and terrible king, frankly, after he receives the covenant. What does this mean for us? Thankfully, hopefully, one of those promises we've been talking about that we can cling to is that God is not afraid of our failures and our imperfections. In fact, he chooses imperfect people because out of the cracks of our imperfection, his light shines through. We are strong because we are weak. We are strong because he is strong, not because we are strong. He covenants with us anyway, despite our many imperfections, our many failures. His enormous promises that bring life and love to his people are still valid, even when our actions might invalidate the covenant. And he is still faithful to us, even when we aren't entirely faithful to him. 
Now, I don't say this to encourage you to go and make all the same faithless, reckless, scheming, selfish mistakes as our heroes. I don't say, hey, whatever you do, you're okay. So do whatever you want. That would make me a fool. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that we can be encouraged that we are never too far to return to his promises. We are never so far out of God's reach that he can't drag us back and redeem us. We are never so much a failure that we can't also be victorious in him. Never. We and the broken neighbors around us are never too far from his covenant to return to him. He is faithful. And because he is faithful, that should encourage us to be faithful to him in return. We should respond with faith. We can be even more heroic than these imperfect heroes that God has covenanted with because we are now the heroes that God has covenanted with. We are those same imperfect, often faithless, very broken, uh, fiends, failures, fools. That I mean, that's me. It's it's so obvious to me that I'm just as just as wayward as these guys. But God isn't done with me. He isn't done with you. He isn't done with us. He will still make something good in our broken stories. He will still redeem and use us for His glory. He doesn't turn from his covenants because we are like these heroes, uh, broken and sinful. Dave? So, um, on our uh, Bible study on Friday nights, we're going through Hebrews. And we read uh, in Hebrews 3 last week, and it, it talks about um, the, the, you know, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. Then jumping down to uh, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Hebrews 3.12, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Yeah. Is that kind of what a summary is of what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That we should learn from these heroes, not that we can screw up and still be... Um, still be in with God, but we should learn from them, take the, the faithful parts of their life and apply that to ourselves so we can be faithful to the end as well. And know that when we make mistakes, which is every day, every hour, he's not going to break covenant with us. He's not going to prove himself unfaithful. He will always be uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That's his character, his nature. And in Hebrews 11, the Hebrew Hall of Fame, all three of these men are, are named as, as examples of faith. Noah, Abraham, and uh, Moses. They're all named as heroes. And they are heroes. But they're flawed heroes. And in those flaws, I think we can see ourselves and know that we are still God's covenantal people. That's the hope that I wanted to draw out of here. It's, it's, we're never too far from, from, from his faith, from his, his faithful promises. My, I, I guess what encourages me about these three heroes that we looked at is that all three of them, their biggest screw-ups in life, their biggest moments of failure come immediately after they make this covenant with God. 
So it's yeah. It a lot of us cling to the hope that we're good enough for God, and or even though and there is real hope in the fact that He makes us good enough. But I I know I'm not good enough. I I cling to the hope that I'm not good enough, and God still fulfills these promises in me and through me. I I cling to the hope that even though I break covenant with Him all the time, He will never break covenant with me and. All my greatest moments of, of success, successful covenant living are because of him, because of the strength he gives me, um, because I'm just as much a fool and a fiend and a failure as these heroes of ours. Uh, and still he does good in and through me and us. And that's where I, I, I don't put my hope in that I'm good enough. I put my hope in that I'm nowhere near good enough. And and make lots of choices that are the wrong choice, but also, like you say, Bob, lots of choices that are the right God-honoring choice because he empowers me to do so. And I'm so thankful that he's a God who's faithful to his covenant promises. Uh, okay, so I told you I didn't write a sermon, that I just wanted to quickly tell some stories, and then that lasted an hour. So sorry about that. Um, but thank you for examining these stories with me. Next week... I'll get my act together and we'll go back to the the last two covenants and, and we'll keep building this house. We'll keep adding rooms to the layout of his covenant house. Um, yeah, let's pray together. <clears throat> God, we thank you that you are so faithful to us, that you are so patient and gracious and loving and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Um, we see it in the stories of these heroes, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, all these heroes in the Bible are very flawed, very broken women and men who are still called to walk blamelessly, still called to to walk by faith with you, just like we are. And I pray that as we walk by faith, we wouldn't put our trust in the fact that we're good enough, but our fa- our, put our trust in the fact that you're good enough um, to redeem us as fallen as we are to draw us back to you as wayward as we are, um, to fill us with wisdom and light as foolish and dark as we are. Uh, we put our trust in you and not in ourselves. And um, I pray that when we do mess up, when we do prove ourselves uh, having fallen short of your covenant, that we would cling to the promises that you make, um, promises of life and love, and that we would return to walk in faith with you. Um, Thank you for these stories and for the stories that each one of these men and women that I see here today have as well. Stories of you being faithful to them. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. They are fools and failures and fiends. And worst of all, they are frequently faithless. When they are faithless repeatedly, he is faithful completely. What's your lamb's name, Sophia? Lambert and Levi. Lambert and Levi? They sound pretty cute. Are you are they as big as you, Sophia, or are you bigger than the lambs? This one is bigger and one is smaller. <laughs> one is bigger and one is smaller? That's pretty special. I bet you'll do a great job of taking care of those little lambs, Lambert and Levi. Yeah, and I wanna be their mommy. <laughs> You'd be such a good mommy. That is so cute. Now I want a lamb.